Are you looking to grow your product sales with specific retailers? Do you wish you had store-level information about your products? What if there was a way to make sure your next product launch was a success? Social Nature is here to help. Social Nature is an all-in-one shopper marketing platform designed to help emerging brands win at retail. Powered by 1 million natural shoppers, they help you move units off the shelf quickly and get you the store-level insights you need to scale your business. If you're looking to grow at retailers like Whole Foods, Sprouts, Kroger, HEB, Wegmans, Walmart, and more, email marketing at socialnature.com or visit business.socialnature.com to learn how. And make sure to mention hearing this message on the Startup CPG podcast. That's business.socialnature.com or the link is in the show notes. So Target said, we're going to order X amount of product and it's going to go in store for X time frame, and then you're out. That kind of commit business really, really helped us. Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. Today, we have a special episode for you to celebrate the launch of the pet channel in the Startup CPG Slack. The number of pet brands in our community is growing and we wanted to create a space dedicated for pet brands to discuss unique challenges and regulations. We thought who better than to join us than one of our early Slack members, Shameless Pets, who I've personally been following for a number of years. James Bellow is the co-founder and CEO of Shameless Pets and is a former target buyer with a lot of wisdom to share. Shameless Pets makes healthy treats and foods for cats and dogs that utilize upcycled ingredients in an effort to fight food waste. As of our recording date, they've saved about 1.2 million pounds of food from going into landfills. Listen in as James shares about his journey from target buyer to brand owner, getting started in upcycled ingredients before the Upcycled Food Association even existed, how pet food regulations differ from human food and the process of setting up their supply chain and manufacturing, launching in Whole Foods, Central Market, and Target, and how they used seasonal end caps to manage establishing relationships with big retailers, navigating when to start taking a paycheck as founders, marketing levers that they rely on, including in-store promotions and campaigns with social nature, the debate on who the original shameless pet is, and more. Hi, James. Welcome to the show today. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Excited to be here. Awesome. I'm so excited to have you here. I was mentioning before we started recording that I've been following Shameless Pets probably since around, I think it was around 2019 when I discovered the brand and bought the lobster treats that I'm sure we'll talk about that my dog's (laughs) a big fan of. Um, And at the time, you know, like bought like a, you know, a local store here in Oregon and then kind of got to, you know, see you all grow. So it's really fun to have you on the show today. Yeah, that no, that's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, you you have to be one of our first customers because we we launched the brand kind of at the end of 18, early 19. So it's cool. It's cool to hear that story. I love that. Well, I would love if you could start us off by just tell us a little bit about yourself and then a little bit about Shameless Pets. Like, you know, what are some of your different products? And that'd be a great place to start. Yeah, awesome. So name is James Bellow. I'm one of the co-founders um, here at Shameless Pets. Uh, my personal background before starting the brand was in brick and mortar retail. So I actually started off um, with Target up at their headquarters in Minneapolis and and did a bunch of different kind of positions there, ultimately going into merchandising and and running um, 
different kind of buyer desks within within the organization. And then um, ultimately just had this this idea of fighting food waste, which which led me down the path to then start Shameless Pets. And so Shameless Pets, kind of as it says, we, we focus in on pet. We're a dog and cat treat company. Um, we make healthy treats, but um, want to do it more sustainably. So our focus is around fighting food waste, working with farmers, food processors, rescuing ingredients that would otherwise go to waste, but are perfectly healthy and nutritious and just need a little extra love, as we like to say, within the supply chain to to kind of keep them in there and make them work within products. So we we put a lot of focus on um, upcycling those ingredients and then turning them into fun treats like you mentioned. Uh, lobster rollover is one of them. We have three different product lines of dog treats and two product lines of cat treats that we have on market and always kind of thinking about what's next. Nice. And did you just launch an exclusive dog food with Whole Foods as well? Is that right? Yeah. I, I don't know if you even caught it. I was, I'm was i so used to saying we have three product lines. We actually have four. So we just launched a uh, an air-dried dog food and topper line with Whole Foods that literally is going live. I think it went live three days ago. Okay. Um, nice. So it's very new. That is very exciting. And and kind of on that note, like how would you describe like your current stage? Like how many doors are you in? What are some of your major retailers like in addition to Whole Foods? Like how many people are on the team now? Like just, yeah, kind of curious about like your overall stage that you're at. Yeah, absolutely. So we we started the brand kind of the idea. And when I say we, myself and my co-founder, her name is Alex. So you'll hear me kind of say Alex throughout this interview. So Alex and I started the idea back in 2016. And it took us about two years to really develop this concept and idea behind um, upcycling and really get the supply chain together. So we launched the brand at the end of 2018. And kind of fast forward to today, we're probably in six, 7,000 locations. Um, we have some of the major retailers behind us, which is awesome. We have um, you know, Target, we have Whole Foods, we do some club work with Costco. Um, and then from a pet standpoint, we also are partnering with Petco, PetSmart, um, Pet Supplies Plus. And then we're in a Oh, oh, about 1500 of like what we call the pet independent. So like your mom and pop pet retailers throughout the nation, as well as being on Amazon and Chewy. Okay, very cool. And how many people are on the team? Yeah, sorry. Um, there are seven of us, including Alex and I. So we've got uh, what we like to say a small but mighty team trying to tackle tackle this big issue. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, yeah, definitely want to go back in time a little bit to kind of you getting started. And like, I think upcycling, like you're the brand that introduced me to the concept of upcycling, because awesome. I believe you started before the Upcycled Food Association existed. Like, I think Alex is maybe on the board, like yes. you were kind of like you were an early mover in that area. So like, did the term kind of exist? How did you like come upon it when there wasn't really any infrastructure support yet? Yeah, it's an awesome that's an awesome question. So it kind of it it happened through previous work. So I was at Target, Alex was at another CPG brand and the two of us started talking and you know, I was seeing food waste um, at the retail store level. So I, I was seeing, you know, the strategies of stack it high, give this illusion of freshness to consumers, but ultimately we were throwing away a lot of food. And, you know, at that time I was in merchandising. So I really wasn't thinking about like what happened to the food that we were throwing away. And then Alex and I started talking. She was looking at it more from a manufacturing standpoint because her background is product development. So, you know, 
on the manufacturing floor, why is all this food getting thrown away? And is there better usage? And the two of us just started talking and, and really it was like this kind of light bulb of, well, we really want to go solve this has become a passion project of ours as we started to do the research and understand just the environmental impacts of food waste that are out there. And it was kind of at the time where like Imperfect Foods was starting to really become a name. Um, you know, this this idea of misshapen fruits and vegetables shouldn't go to waste. The upcycle term was there, but it was definitely not widely used. Um, you know, there are plenty of times, and, and I'm kind of thinking about a lot of the moments where we said, like, should we call it upcycle? Should we call it misfit? Should we call it wonky? What, like, what do we really? How do we describe this? Um, so we did, you know, it, it was, it was a lot of work, a lot of brainstorming, a lot of kind of going back and forth, but yeah, it was, I mean, looking back, it was a lot of fun because to your point, we were the first, so we were able to go out and educate a lot of consumers, educate a lot of retailers around the concept and, um, and really kind of have the time to figure it all out without having like predetermined, um, connotations to, to what that means. And then, um, you know, Alex, you, to your point, is on the board for the Upcycled Food Association. So that's been just incredible for us is that we got to work on it and then have uh, kind of a part and seat at the table on kind of what does a terminology mean? What does certifications mean? What does it mean in pet? Because it's a little bit different in pet than the human food and just kind of like all of that nuance. And it's just cool being being a founder and be, having that seat at the table to kind of help start that trend. Right. And what did it kind of look like to set up that supply chain? Like, was it, you know, like cold calling people that you thought had some waste? I think there's some misconception too that I think I've heard you mention on another interview that people think that it's free because you're like taking like, you know, what may have been thrown away. So like, what did it look like to set up like what you're going to pay for something and find people that you can source, you know, quality ingredients that are going to meet like the standards to be in pet food, but that also, you know, what otherwise have been wasted. Like, I'm curious about setting up that supply chain. Yeah. Um, I wish there was an easy answer, but like any startup, <laughs> it's, it was uh, a lot of trying to figure it out. Um, you know, we used our network being somewhat in, in the food scene before, like, you know, in, in retail and CPG. But to your point, a lot of cold calling, a lot of Googling, you know, honestly, a lot of people think because there's so much waste that's out there, this must be really easy to get. But as you start to kind of piece it all together, to your point, there's a lot of work that needs to be done from a quality control standpoint. I mean, I always tell people there's a reason why food is wasted is because it's been optimized in the supply chain, and it's actually easier and cheaper to waste that food than to keep it within the supply chain. So there's a lot of work that goes into figuring out how to do that. But frankly, like it was a lot of sales in the beginning because we were so small with this idea, no funding. So it was a lot of, you know, pitching a dream and telling telling groups to believe us. And and those groups might have been wasting a lot of food. And then they, you know, if they were interested, then they would come back and say, okay, well, we've got 10 truckloads of product. And we're like, oh, no, we need like 50 pounds of product. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, trying to convince them that one day we'll we'll need all of that. But there's just a lot of work that they were going to need to do to put in to for those quality controls and those those pre-checks. So honestly, a lot of kind of, you know, starting up conversations and stopping, but really you know, being able to work with true believers who, who also believed in the mission and, and believed in kind of what we were pitching and selling um, and then building building with them. And, you know, as as we've progressed, we've gotten a lot 
better at understanding what exactly we're looking for, what do we need, um, and being able to communicate that up front. Because again, just like any startup, we, we were learning along the way as well. So what we said a month, a week, a day ago might be changing. And we just needed people who kind of believed in what we were doing as well in the beginning stages. Yeah, that's super interesting. Because yeah, I find sourcing in general to be more like sales than anything else, trying to get suppliers to believe in you. So this is just another level that like I can only imagine of trying to get people to buy into the whole concept. And like you said, it's been the system has unfortunately been optimized that just throwing it away is cheaper. So you're you're having to convince them on multiple fronts. So that's really yeah. interesting. I, but I would say to the vast majority of suppliers who we work with, so we we namely work with farmers and food processors, I, I think 95 to 100 percent of people know they want to change. So I, I think there's this, this kind of kind of connotation that, oh, they don't they don't care about food waste. I, I think that's, you know, what we have found is that's completely opposite. Anyone who's in the food system knows that it's wrong. It's just kind of prioritization. How how do we yeah. go solve that? And that's where, you know, us and hopefully a lot of others can come in and help solve that. Because I do think there's a lot of people who want to get it solved. Like, like I said, yeah. it's just financially and it's tough when you're working with startups who you know can't financially support you as well either so but right. it's but i but in, and then as we've grown what's been really cool is we've seen a lot of inbound come to us as well where people are reaching out and and saying hey we've seen this we see that you're working with lobster we see you're working with blueberry sweet potato you know we've got this produce is there anything you can do for us. And, and that's been really fun just to kind of see the kind of evolution of where we've been. That's really cool. And yeah, that's a great point that that people don't necessarily want to be wasting the food. They want to find a solution. And so, yeah, that, that's so cool. And a lot of the the like waste that you reuse is like based from sunflowers, right? Yeah. So we've got, so we, we now have 14 different supply chains that okay. we have. And then just depending on the product line that we have, we'll, you know, it'll differ. What we try to do is make sure that at least 20% has um, upcycled ingredients in the formula. We go all the way up to 50%. We also do some, we, we like to have fun do seasonal SKUs as well. So we've got an earth month SKU that's gone up to 85%. Um, oh, wow of upcycled material. And yeah, we, we do a, um, a sunflower seed. So essentially once, um, sunflower seeds are pressed for oil, um, the, the kind of sh the shell and the kernel are still left over. And, um, you know, we figured out a way to, to process that into a powder and it's an awesome ingredient because it's lower in fat, higher in fiber, uh, higher in protein as well. So great for, for um, dogs' health, so that's the that's the other thing that when we worked and when we began and until today, whatever upcycled ingredient we're utilizing, we want to make sure that it's healthy for pets as well. We we don't want to just you know rescue something because we were able to figure out how to rescue it, but it didn't have like a functional health benefit and kind of an add-on because that's been really key to us as we go out and educate around upcycling is always thinking about the consumer first and making sure that the ingredients that we're upcycling there's kind of those positive health connotations for consumers. So they you're kind of removing one of the hurdles of, well, I don't know what upcycling means, but I know blueberries are good for my dog. So this is this is interesting. So that's really how we kind of built the brand and and continue to try to move that forward. Yeah. And I think you all did a lot of talk in you may still, but I I, I think I remember Alex mentioning like that you did like 
40, 50, like deep customer interviews to like kind of get feedback on the product? Like how, how did that, like in the early days, especially like, how did you really tap into your customers to learn like what they were drawn to? Like the, like you said, was it the blueberries? Did they understand upcycling? Like how did you tap into your customer base to kind of help that inform you as you grew? Yeah, it, it kind of goes back to your question on how did we start off upcycling uh cold calls is is really what we did so we you know we set up our website we we started selling i would even predate that so even before that there's pictures that we still have that we always go back to where alex was baking our initial lobster treats um out of her apartment in boston and we would just go kind of weekends walking around Boston, just talking to people and telling them what it was. And we would, you know, we would, we would describe it once as upcycled, we'd describe it as misfit. And we, we just try to figure out what did people react positively to. And then as we got our website up and running, and we're doing really small runs and and getting it out there, what we found, because at first we thought, oh, we'd have to give away a lot of free product. What we found were those early adopters really just believed in the brand and believed in the mission and were willing to give their time, which was really cool. So we honestly, we would just call them up, ask for their time. And yeah, we did quite a few interviews. And then as we progressed the brand or like evolved flavors, we then used that base to to ask them other questions. A lot of them came up with kind of the next flavor profiles for us, which was fun. And they've just kind of been our super users from the beginning. That's so cool. And like, how how did you learn about like pet regulations too? Because I feel like there's a lot of regulations around pet treats and pet food. And as you went to like, you know, going to a manufacturer, like, and, you know, and then getting into retailers, like how is the pet industry different? How did you learn about that? Like, what did it look like to like, yeah, to figure that out? It seems complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's super. So it's super complicated. Again, looking back, we probably didn't know everything. <laughs> Uh, as we did it, we definitely learned along the way. Um, we found an awesome regulations consultant from the very beginning who was very, very uh, generous with her time to, to kind of help us out. And we've been able to now utilize her as we continue to grow and, and move forward. But yeah, it's, it's very different because pet falls under animal feed. It's regulated by the Department of Ag, which means that each state has its own regulations. Um, so you have to figure like there, there's that whole nuance of when you bring it to market in retail, how do you register with the Department of Ag in, in each state, which just adds a lot of a lot of nuance and complications for a for a startup. And then it's governed by a group called AFCO. Um, so that so the states kind of look to AFCO regulations. So you as a startup, you're trying to get really smart on what is what does AFCO mean? What do we have to what do we have to do there? What do we have to do for the Department of Ag? And, and again, we just got lucky that we had a consultant who was able to come on and, and really help us and kind of guide us and give us like somewhat of the playbook to do that. But then the other piece that you you mentioned that, again, I think we leaned really heavily on was our co-manufacturer. You know, they've been in the space for... 20 plus years helped launch a lot of different treat brands. So they really knew a lot of those rules. And, and again, we just begged, pleaded and stole a lot of their time in the beginning to just ask them what exactly we needed to do uh, to get the brand launched. Was it difficult to find a, a co-manufacturer in the pet space? I'm not as familiar with you know those manufacturers. So like, was it difficult to find that relationship? Sounds like it was a really positive one. So did you like 
interview lots of different manufacturers or? Um, Yes and no. I guess uh, a lot of Googling (laughs) Um, to try to figure out who who actually makes the product that we want. I I think we got we have a little bit of an upper hand, not a little bit. Alex would really shoot me on that one. Um, Alex, you know, is a product developer and, and comes from the manufacturing space. So we we obviously had a lot of kind of internal know-how and being able to lean on her on, on who the manufacturers are. But what you know, we did a lot of Googling, a lot of kind of networking in that space. And then within the pet world, there are two key trade shows. Um, so it's called Global Pet Expo, which is actually happening next week, and then Super Zoo. So we targeted, so we did a lot of Googling, a lot of talking to, to different individuals, and then targeted the Global Pet Expo trade show because a lot of the manufacturers would be there and kind of beelined it to each one of them and, and back to sales, sold our our dream and our story on what we wanted to do and and was lucky enough to have one of them come on board with us. Yeah. Oh, very cool. And so on the retail side, you mentioned you're in 7,000 doors, which is incredible. Like, what did it look like to get started? And especially with your background in Target, did you start in independence? Did you start pitching bigger retailers right away since you kind of knew how it worked? Like, what was the strategy starting out? Yeah, so we we went in the pet space, probably the um, complete opposite go to market channel that most do and and you kind of you nailed it the reason why we did that is because my background's target um and a lot of the network that i have stayed more into like the larger retailers so that's where we that's where we started i would say the vast majority of pet brands and pet treat brands will start within the independent channel just because it, it it's definitely a channel where you can have the employees really get kind of excited trained up on your brand and be able to tell your story it's just that was it was kind of the opposite that was a channel i had no network no idea how to go tackle that so we actually started with within like the grocery channel um, we launched with central market down in in Texas and then kind of started to build up with Whole Foods, with Target. And then as we were able to luckily enough kind of continue to grow, get funding, we brought on a team and the first hire that we went to go look for was somebody who came from the pet specialty channel to kind of bring that expertise to us. And then once he was able to join, he was able to then help us really understand the whole distribution channel, which distributors we should be working with, which retailers we should be working with. And and kind of that whole nuance. So we were able to then lean really heavily on him um, to go grow that channel. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. And because you were launching, like you started out launching with some chains, like, and like you said, often you might be starting with like independence and kind of growing that. And then your your marketing, you know, you'd have smaller marketing efforts. How did you support sell through when you're launching in like, mul- you know, batches of stores? Yeah. And, you know, you had expertise in how it worked, but like, what did that actually look like to support the sell through doing bigger launches right away when there's no awareness of what the product is? Yeah. First, extremely hectic in the (laughs) fact that like, I remember we were trying, we didn't even have our bag design done when uh, Central Market said they're going to be bringing us in. (laughs) So there was a very hectic, I wouldn't probably recommend going that big right out of the gates through through our experience. But um, you know, I lean pretty heavily on my my time at Target as a buyer and, and just understood with very, very limited resources, we focused a lot on promotions and then and then working with the retailer on any sort of kind of, you know, 
owned marketing that they were able to offer up. So we we were able to get into like their store flyers that were talking about like either upcycling or sustainability or pet um, and wanted to feature us just and more kind of telling our story. I think we were able to get into a, a lot of those kind of marketing avenues for free. Um, and then the dollars that we spent really were very, very targeted um, to TPCs to make sure that we had pricing on shelf. What we learned really quickly was um, it's a it's a highly promotional category in the space. So we needed to make sure that we were kind of hopefully, I mean, we're never going to be on even ground with the behemoths like a Mars or a Nestle, but that we were actually playing in that same kind of ballpark. So yeah, it was, it was tough because we didn't have a lot of a lot of money. Um, but again, I think kind of asking, asking buyers, asking um, the different retailers on other avenues that we can go attract to because um, what we found is a lot of the buyers really took to our story and wanted to go promote it themselves. And, and then we were able to get a lot of the, the kind of benefits through the marketing initiatives that they wanted to put forward for us. Right. And you mentioned fundraising. At what point, like at how many stores did you raise some outside funds? We were in probably 500 stores. Um, so so our journey was a little unique because we went kind of to a little bit of a larger retailer right out of the gates, um, but we were still self-funded. So I actually, Alex and I had a conversation. I went full-time on the brand. Alex was still kind of doing her consultancy gig because she needed to, to make money. I was lucky enough. I got to lean on my wife who who had a job and, and benefits. So um, so I was able to go full-time on that. And then we got to about 500 stores. And then we got lucky enough. We, we applied and got accepted into Mars Pet Care's accelerator called Leap Venture Studios. And then um, through that, they put us uh, investment in and then we were able to kind of use that and use that proof of concept to then go out and raise what I would call like our friends and family round. And then at that point, once once that outside funding came in, then it then we felt confident enough that Alex could come on board and that the two of us could start to take in a, a small salary, but kind of make sure that it was something that we can kind of dedicate all of our time to. Yeah. Yeah. That that was going to be one of my questions of like, when uh, when did you start paying yourself and what did that decision look like? Because I know so many founders in our community are weighing that question of like, do I put it back into the business? Like, or when is it okay to start taking a salary? Like what, you know, do you have any insights from conversations you had around then or like any, you know, stories or just thoughts on on that process that you know to kind of help other people evaluate when is it time to you know start taking home some money for yourself yeah um there's no easy answer to that one we had many many conversations around it um you know i think each person comes at it differently like i said i i was able to lean on uh other family to to be able to support us i think for us um once we once we felt confident enough with the sales velocities that we were seeing um that we knew more POs were going to come through because i think at you know at that stage we would ship a PO and have no idea if another one was coming or not um and then once we got the outside funding i, re- I remember vividly having a conversation with one of our investors and they were asking well are you paying yourself and we we both said no not yet and they sat us down and said we you need to pay yourself something because when we are putting our money into the company 
we want to make sure that the founders are happy. If the founders aren't happy, then they're disgruntled with the company. And then we know that you're not all in. So it was a different, it was just a different perspective than we had because our perspective was every penny goes back into the company and we're doing this for the long haul. And it was just interesting to hear that perspective. And I think that kind of opened up our eyes to then to then look at it a little bit differently. And and you know, when we started pulling that salary, it was very, very small in the beginning. Um, just again, to make sure that I think our biggest nerves, probably like every other founder is if we take money out of the company, are we ultimately hurting the company's kind of long term opportunities? So we started um, and just kind of slowly built up again, as we kind of grew confidence in in where the business was going. Yeah, oh, that's super helpful to hear that investors insights into that process. Yeah, yeah, it definitely took us like by surprise. Um, but then when you step back and you think about it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. and, and we did and kind of what I would recommend to others who are in that stage who either have investors or are talking to investors, we had very open conversations. And, and again, I would ask a lot of questions to them on what should my salary be? And, and use them as sounding boards to understand because, they, because again, there's no Google out there to tell you if you're a startup founder in the, you know, 200,000, uh, you know, sales range, you should be earning this. And, but the investors know a lot of that. And, um, being able to kind of use them as a sounding board was really helpful for us in trying to figure out when's the right time and then how much is the right amount. Right. And then going back a little bit to Target, since that's, you know, part of your expertise as well, like, you know, how how did it work to, did you launch right away nationally with Target? Do you use a distributor when you work with Target? Like, can you share a little bit about like the process? Like, did you kind of go through the normal category review calendar? Just kind of curious about like what it looked like to get set up, how you scaled. Yeah. Yeah. So no distributor with Target. We we went direct with them right out of the gates, which um, really helped us from a pricing standpoint. And you know, we we were lucky enough, given given some of my relationships and just understanding how Target worked. Um, we actually did some seasonal business with them, so they they had certain end caps and. That really helped us because, again, it was early stages. Um, I think we were just closing our fundraising round, but still hadn't had it fully closed. Um, and what we did is we set it up to have it be what's called a commit business. So Target said, we're going to order X amount of product and it's going to go in store for X time frame, and then you're out. And that was phenomenal for us in the beginning because we didn't have to worry about producing, you know, X plus number of weeks of supplies. And if it didn't work, then we were going to be sitting on that much inventory. So that, that kind of commit business really, really helped us because then we were able to go order the specific amount of pouches that we needed with our co-man. We knew exactly the quantity that we needed. And we were able also from a cash flow standpoint to pretty much produce on time, ship it out, and then try to receive cash back in well, the longer terms that Target gives, but um, rather than holding it. So that was something that you know we got I would say somewhat lucky that the opportunity was there, but we're really targeted within that and, and was able to prove ourselves out from a sales standpoint through that rather than going directly in line. Um, we, we just saw that or I saw that as just having a lot of risk involved in our early stage. Oh, interesting. And when you do something seasonal like that, 
is that in targeted <laughs> a targeted number right. of target stores or is that like do they do those nationally um so it's so it was national i think we were in memory serves me 11 11 1200 stores but they'll but they'll tell you you know, exactly making it up. We want 20,000 units of this SKU mm-hmm. um, and it's going to go into this number of stores. So we were able again then to to really get kind of firm numbers to then go produce off of. And and in the early stage that t- to us, that just really, really helped cash flow, yeah. um, which was just, again, really, really helpful. So I, you know, I, I still, even to this day, go look for those types of opportunities just because, again, it's just a, it's a nice way to prove yourselves out in retail without taking on that risk. Because again, as you go to the larger stores, the worst thing, and as a former buyer, the absolute worst thing is to be out of stock. And as a brand, if you're out of stock, that means fines are coming your way. Um, but then as you're managing cash, you don't want to get too heavy on inventory because you might run out of money at that point because everything's sitting in inventory. So um, those types of opportunities, especially in the beginning, are are really, really helpful to try to try to bring in. Yeah. How how do you go about finding opportunities like that? Was that partially your like, you know, insider knowledge? Is that something that founders can like ask for of retailers? Like any tips on kind of, you know, finding opportunities like that? Um, I think, I mean, networking and asking questions. Um, so specific to target, obviously I, I had my experience there, but, but then again, I don't have a lot of experience in other retail that we were able to do that. So, you know, networking with other founders has been phenomenal for, for me. Uh, what I found is if you don't ask, you're not going to get, you're not going to receive. So, um, you know, ask specific questions. Like I, I, I have a lot of founders reaching out to me and I'm more than willing to, to give kind of my time and, and help wherever I can make introductions. Um, so I think really just that, that networking piece, um, has, is really kind of how we kind of grew it the best way. And I know it's kind of a cliche or, or open um, answer, but but in all honesty, like a lot of the trade shows we would go to, I wouldn't get a booth because we couldn't afford it. And I would just have very targeted, like I walked Kroger, I saw a certain brand, I thought that they were a little bit more of a startup because, you know, they didn't have a big, you know, CPG brand behind them. And I would just target that and go either early morning or, or late afternoon and, and strike up a conversation and then ask my questions. And typically that that worked for us. Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. Um, very helpful information. Any other like, you know, target specific tips from your past experience or that you've learned also from being in the pet category at Target? Curious about if there's anything else that, you know, you think other founders might find helpful when thinking about, you know, pitching to Target or or, you know, how to be successful at Target. Yeah, I, I think maybe not specific to Target, but, but specific to larger retail line reviews are the are key and critical. So as a buyer, you know, I could go talk to brands and love brands and want to bring them in. But unless I either had that end cap opportunity that I talked to earlier, um, I was pretty much stuck on my line review timing. So what I tell a lot of kind of new founders with new brands is the number one thing to ask buyers if you get in front of them is when is that line review? Because what you want to do is try to plan those conversations around the line review. So you're not 
wasting too much of either your time or their time and you understand kind of when's the right opportunity to strike. Um, and then the other piece of advice that I that I give, um, especially for new brands, and I still put myself in as a new brand, um, is you're never going to compete with the big brands from a sales velocity standpoint. So going to a buyer and saying, you know, I'm a cookie company, I'm going to compete with Oreo. The, the first thing a buyer is going to say is, no, you're not. And their mind switches back and and you've kind of lost the conversation right there. Buyers really are looking for for stories around incrementality. So who is your who's your consumer and what are you doing to bring them into my store on my shelf and drive incrementality for my total planogram? And I think that's where if, if you can put your focus to that and understand what what consume, which consumers are going to the store, even if it's a gut feeling, you don't have to have a, a lot of data to be able to do that and where your brand sits from an incremental standpoint and just really hone in and focus on that. Like for us, it was sustainability and premium and, you know, being able to say, hey, we're not just another biscuit company that's going to steal sales from your other biscuit companies. But this is who we're bringing. This is who we're targeting. And this is the incremental sales that you're going to see because you have us on the shelf. You know, that's what I, that's what I kind of, my advice is always focus there, especially as a new brand, because final thing I would say as a buyer, your strategy is, is essentially you've got your big national brands who are there to drive sales for you. You have your own brands that are there to drive margin. And then that other, that kind of middle section are these, are us, the emerging brands to drive incrementality and uniqueness to assortment. So make sure that that's what you talk to, make sure that that's what you're driving towards. And then the final point is when you get on the shelf, don't forget about that. (laughs) Make sure that you're actually trying to track it as best you can um, and being able to always talk to that. Um, So you then don't get that put back into, well, your sales velocity is compared to Oreo. Because it, that's just a, a tough spot to be as an emerging brand. Yeah, that's all really great. Um, I'm also curious on like, you know, as we talked about some of the marketing strategies, I believe that you're running your second social nature campaign right now. And we're big social nature fans at Startup uh, CBG. So curious about your experience with your first social nature campaign and like, you know, how you how you used um, that and and yeah, and about the second campaign you're launching. Yeah, huge social nature fan as well. Um, you know, again, like it's a perfect question and kind of going off of how do we drive incrementality to, to the shelf? And, you know, our thing was our piece is, okay, how do we bring someone who might not have been in a Petco or might not be in a PetSmart, but lives within that radius? How do we bring them into the store and be able to also showcase that to the buyer with real kind of proven data points? So what social nature was able to do for us was go out, recruit, those individuals and we were able to give here's a demographic here's here's what we're looking for you to go recruit we were able to put some questions out there um, one to better understand just what do consumers think about our brand before maybe seeing it on shelf so that was great for us from a marketing standpoint but then also um, understanding where do they where do they shop and why do they shop there for pet and then to the completion of the program, giving them a free bag to go to a Petco or to a PetSmart. So really driving kind of, you know, trips into the store and then hearing and then also being able to track again and tell our buyers, you, you know, we brought X thousand of people who hadn't been in PetSmart into PetSmart, trialed it. Here's what they thought. 
and then be able to track them for repeat purchases as well. And again, kind of going back to the incrementality is, is driving that incrementality. So we, we've, um, we've done programs um, with Social Nature, with Target, with Petco, with PetSmart. We're looking at Whole Foods now. So really just continuing to, to partner with them with our key retailers. Um, and like I said, not only do we get to drive velocity at store, but also for our marketing team to really understand and hone in on what's the right messaging um, that either works or doesn't work and, and how do we iterate off of that. Right. And to do a campaign like Social Nature, is that something where you're you know, allocating marketing dollars like, you know, from something else to do a campaign like Social Nature? Or is that something where you're like, all right, we're going to expand our marketing budget to do that? Because, you know, giving away free product to drive trial, it's not it's not a cheap activity. So I'm curious how you evaluated that compared to other marketing activities to kind of do your budget planning and see what was most effective. Yeah, Uh, great question. Nothing seems to be ever incremental. Everything's the same budget. <laughs> um, what we, why we really love social nature is we feel like it, it hits on two fronts. It's top of funnel and bottom of funnel for us, um, which we just haven't found a lot of other options that do that. There, it, you know, we can do a lot of, we can do billboards as top of funnel, but we can't track the so what from that. We're social nature. We're able to know that we're going to go target X thousand consumers who haven't seen our brand, heard of our brand. So we get to introduce them to the brand. And then we also know that we get to close them, so to say, in the fact that they're going to go to a store and try the product rather than rather than not. And then where I think the kind of win-win comes with social nature is it's we also can drive specific to a retailer. So then we know that we mm-hmm. can go to that retailer and say, hey, look what we're doing for you from a sales standpoint. So not only are we kind of getting that marketing, but we're also getting the sales benefit out of it. Um, but to your point, it's it's definitely not cheap um, because you're you're kind of paying for the marketing and then you also have to pay for that kind of free bag coupon redemption as well, which is at the full retail price, obviously. So so it's, it's definitely something that it took us a while to, to think about and to do. But what we decided on is, you know, do that instead of some of the other activations because it hit on, on all the levels that I talked about. Right. Yeah. And this is a little bit different topic, but like, you know, we've mentioned distribution a little bit. Like, are the distribution players different in like the pet world? How did you figure that out? It sounds like with Target, like you went direct, but like how is navigating the world of distribution within the pet world? Yeah. uh, Very confusing for somebody who's (laughs) never been there before. Um, And yes, it's very, very different. Um, So if you come from the human food world, the distributors that you're used to, the Unify and Kehi, they do distribute pet, but they distribute pet for um, the grocery channel or the natural channel. So for the whole, the pet independent, pet specialty side of the business, there are specific pet distributors. As I mentioned earlier, I, I really learned that whole world really through my first hire who who lived in that space. What I can share is there are probably four to five national distributors so similar to the Kehi and Unify who will who will service the national um, side of things and then there are plenty of small regional distributors who will only cover a few states and you know the the goal is not 
you know, depending on your strategy is how do you, you know, if you want to focus on the Pacific Northwest, then you, you try to go figure out which is the right regional distributor for you. There's probably, you know, three to six that are out there depending on the region. A lot of it comes down to what is in their kind of portfolio at the moment. uh, Is there any competition that they might not be able to, even though they like you, they might not be able to carry your product because of that. Um, But having those conversations and, and when we, when I started to learn about it, what I found is those two trade shows, um, Super Zoo and Global Pet Expo, all of those regional and national distributors have booths there. So we spent, again, in the early days as we started to try to figure out where do we want to go, a lot of our time not getting the booth, but walking the show and going to those booths and having those conversations and, and figuring out you know where the shameless pets fit within their portfolio. And then how do we kind of build that whole ecosystem? Yeah. Wow. And this is, I just feel like I have to ask as a pet owner, like, who's the original shameless pet? Like, <laughs> you know, who, who's the pet, who's the pet that tried all the first, this, the first samples? Cause I, uh, I, you know, assume you both had pets. So like, yeah, yeah tell us about um, the OG. <laughs> it's, you know, I think it depends on the founder on who, who the, the true OG is. We, we both think our, uh, our dog was the first original shameless pets book. Both, okay. so, so mine is Mina. Mine, she was a puggle, um, and would get literally into anything. And uh, <laughs> I've got four kids now, and her her whole mo um, was when our kids were toddlers and starting to eat, she would know how to scratch their their legs where they would kind of freak out and then throw their food, and then she would go get it. Um, and then Alex's um, Yorkie Madison is the just as shameless as well in, in getting food and kind of getting after everything. So if you ask Alex, it's Madison. If you ask me, it's Mina. But uh, yeah, the two of them, the two of them come together and you can see our, our mascot behind me. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what his or her name should be. So we're still in that kind of brand evolution <laughs> on uh, what is our dog and what is our cat's name. <laughs> so awesome. I love that. Well, a question I like to end on is, are there any like guiding questions that you asked yourself when faced with tough decisions or just like the number of decisions you have to make as, you know, like so many decisions come up in a day that you're making? Like, are there questions that you help your like, like that you come back to or that kind of help guide you as, you know, as you've navigated this? Yeah. So to the number of things you have to do as a founder is you, you would you won't know until you're there. So I think a lot of it just make make the decision based on your gut and move forward and don't look back. Always continue to move forward. But uh, I've had this motto kind of back when I was in my target days and it's carry forward into, um, into shameless pets. It's kind of odd, but um, it's always, what would my resume say? What if, if I was telling my story on a job interview for this decision, what would I want my story to be? So I still do that at Shameless Pets, where if it's a big decision and we have to map something out, I'll kind of step back and say, well, if I was interviewing for a job and I needed to say, you know, make the decision on should I go to Target or not, how would I, how would I ideally walk that story through to get the job? And it kind of reframes it for me on, you know, taking all of the noise out of it and just helping for me at least make the decision that I would feel proud to go off and and tell somebody for that in that interview. I love that. That's I I love hearing everyone's different answers to that question. So that's really cool. (laughs) Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we kind of 
you know, go into how to how to find, uh, you know, shameless pets in your website and anything. Any other final thoughts that you wanted to share? The only thing I would say, and we talked about it a little bit around networking, and I'm, I'm very serious about this. I keep the majority of my Friday afternoons open is if anybody's listening and anybody has any questions on retail, how to launch a pet brand, like, please reach out. Um, you know, I can, I don't know if you want me to share my email here, we could share it later, but, um, please, please reach out. I, um, you know, we grew through that networking and asking questions and getting answers and help along the way. And I feel like, um, it's, it's our duty to, to pay that forward and help others, um, through that. So, and, and I would say, I don't find other treat brands as a competitor to ours. It's kind of, you know, it's a big industry. We can all help each other. So that, that's my parting is if you have any questions, please reach out. I will do my best, but trust me, I will, I will definitely follow up. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Happy to share your email in the show notes. I'll also include a link to your LinkedIn. And then for those that want to check out Shameless Pets, go to shamelesspets, just as it sounds, com. You can also follow them on Instagram. And then you, I think you have a, is there a store locator on your site? There's at least a list yeah. of all the, the retailers you're in, right? Yeah. Store locator. Um, check us out. Uh, it'd be, you know, awesome for you guys to try it out. We we have dog. We talked a lot about dog. We have cat treats as well. So if you have a cat, try it out. Um, yeah. And let us know. And, and also let us know what the next flavor profile should be. Alex loves it. Um, always trying to come up with the next innovation. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much, James. This was awesome. I really appreciate you sharing with me and with our community. And as we kind of like start to, you know, help have more resources out for pet brands, I, I love that you were able to come on the show and just really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. To get the invite to our new pet Slack channel, go to startupcpg.com, sign up for our emails at the bottom of that page, then grab the Slack link at the top of any email that you get from Startup CPG. Once inside, head to all channels or channel browser to find the pet channel. It sounds like a lot of steps, but it just takes a few minutes and is free. See you there. Thank you for listening in today. I'm so honored you joined me for this conversation and I love hearing from you all with feedback, suggestions, or if you just want to say hi at podcast at startupcpg.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to share it with a friend or colleague, subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and maybe even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you aren't yet in our Slack community of founders and experts, we'd love to see you there. You can get the free invite at startupcpg.com and find all our other awesome resources there like webinars, databases, the blog, the magazine, and virtual and in-person events. And if you found yourself rocking out to our intro and outro music, which I do every single time, make sure to check out the Super Fantastics on Spotify. It's the band of our Startup CPG founder, Daniel Scharf. I'm Jesse Freitag, your host and producer. And on behalf of the whole team at Startup CPG, thank you for being here and see you next week.